This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Friday, November 24th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Mike. in for Dave. Let's hit those horns and go. We have a great show for you today on Friday. So coming up on the show, the weekly news panel assembles. Michelle, those include the federal government's fall economic statement that came out on Tuesday. We'll also consider a new poll that finds a majority of Canadians support exemptions on carbon tax pricing for home energy. And they'll share their thoughts on the media coverage surrounding the vehicle explosion at the Rainbow Bridge. All that and more to come on today's show, but we begin with the top news stories of the day. Beginning overseas, a ceasefire agreement between Israel and Hamas has come into effect. Here's Ryan Clark with the latest. The four-day ceasefire between Israel and Hamas is in effect and appears to be holding. ABC's Jordana Miller in Jerusalem says hostages taken by Hamas in the October 7th attack will be released. Hamas expected to release 13 Israeli hostages, all women and children, later today. They are the first of 50 Israelis to be released. Sources telling ABC News American Abigail Dan, who turns four today, is not on this first list of those who will come home. Israel government spokesperson Zig Avman said the first group of hostages will be accompanied by the Red Cross from Gaza into Egypt, then Egypt into Israel. They will be flown to five major hospitals and medical centers throughout Israel, depending on their health situation. They'll reunite with their families at hospitals. Israel's going to free Palestinian prisoners and allow more fuel into Gaza. Brian Clark, ABC News. And staying with that story, Karen Chalmers has more details on the situation in Gaza. Several trucks carrying fuel and supplies roll into Gaza from the Rafah crossing on the border with Egypt. Israel has agreed to allow the delivery of over 34,000 gallons of fuel a day for the duration of the truce. Despite Israel's warnings not to head north, many Palestinians made their way there by foot and donkey carts, desperate to see what had become of their homes. One resident, Sofyan Abu Amir, walking towards his home in Gaza City, told the AP, We're returning to our homes to see and check our conditions there and how our homes are. However, an AP journalist reported that Israeli troops fatally shot two Palestinians and wounded 11 others as they headed towards the main combat zone in northern Gaza. I'm Karen Shamas. Staying abroad, there's a rise of respiratory illness in China, and the WHO has made a formal request for China to provide more information on the current spike in cases. Here's Brett Clement with more. 
The WHO noticing the uptick in cases may not be so unexpected, given this is China's first flu season since COVID restrictions were lifted, similar to what you might remember happened in the US after lockdowns ended. But scientists are continuing to monitor this very closely. Meanwhile, in the US, RSV cases are on the rise, especially in southern states. The CDC saying children under five are being hospitalized at the highest rate. Health officials urging families to be vigilant as they start gathering indoors for the holiday season. The EU is sending border reinforcements to the Finnish-Russian border over an influx of migration. Norman Hall files this report. The European Union is sending border police reinforcements to Finland over fears that Russia is behind a migrant influx. The European Union's border agency says it's sending a significant reinforcement, including patrol cars and additional equipment, as soon as next week to Finland's border with Russia. More than 800 migrants without proper visas and documentation have arrived in Finland so far since August, with more than 700 so far in November. That compares to just a few dozen in September and October. They include people from Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Kenya, Morocco, and Somalia. The Kremlin denies that it's behind the surge. I'm Norman Hall. And back here at home, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau welcomed two top members of the EU last night. The rest of the delegation is set to arrive today for a summit. And as the summit is set to get on their way, agreements have already been reached. Karen Rebo has this primer. Trudeau kicked off a two-day summit with an opening speech last night at an Oceanside Brew Pub where he welcomed European Council President Charles Michel and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. This morning, they'll all chat about such mutual concerns as artificial intelligence and the wars in Ukraine and the Middle East. Hydrogen energy will also come up. It's not just about the hard work that has always been around natural resources. It's also about envisioning the future in very exciting ways. Trudeau's already announced Canada has worked out a deal to build water bombers for the EU in the wake of the devastating wildfire seasons both regions suffered this year. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. And lastly, with the connection to Ukraine, the Conservative Party has voted against a free trade agreement with Ukraine. Conservative leader Pierre Polyev says that his party didn't vote against the agreement itself, but the inclusion of a carbon tax in the deal. We didn't vote against a free trade agreement. We brought in the free trade agreement. We voted against Justin Trudeau forcing a carbon tax into that pre-existing agreement. Ukraine says it has had a set price on carbon for years and urges the federal government to pass the legislation. That's it for the news. Let's now turn over to the daily polls. First, We'll take a look at the results from yesterday's daily poll. On Thursday, Dave asked you, how do you feel about receiving physical junk mail like flyers and other advertising material? 6% of you agreed with me and said, you know what, you like it. There was something valuable about it. 71% of you said, I just like it. And 23% said, I don't care. We actually had some comments on Facebook. So starting with Carla Forgard uh, Pullen, who wrote, it is good for Firestarter and paper mache. Being a bit cheeky there, Carla. And Craft Endeavor posted, it is a waste of money and time. Never read it. It just toss it into the garbage can besides the mailbox. I just like it and wish they would quit sending it. And finally, Tanika Ellen Harness said, 
I normally toss it, but I have issues going out, so getting the flyers are helpful. And if I don't find them worth my time, I craft them or recycle. That's a great way to find alternative uses for otherwise recyclable garbage. So the daily poll for today, it's gonna be quite obvious because Black Friday is here. And while there are a ton of deals, it seems shoppers are trying to make some informed purchases. Here's reporter Tara Deschamps with more. I'm hearing from some people, you know, if, if we want to be spending money at all at this time of year, we want to make sure what we're getting is going to last. So they're, they're talking about, um, you know, picking up items that they know will have longevity for them. The Shopify president, Harley Finkelstein, told me that he thinks the theme of the year is going to be less quantity, more quality. And so this is going to be the natural uh, progression. I want to know from you, are you taking play, uh, taking part in Black Friday shopping? Yes, in store? Yes, online? Or no, not at all? Let's welcome in Elizabeth Moeller and Laura Bain and get their thoughts on this. Elizabeth, I will start with you. Are you taking part in Black Friday shopping today? Guilty as charged. I even took part in the pre-Black Friday deals that many places, including uh, Amazon, had last week. What I'm doing is really thinking sort of long-term about things that I need. So one thing I've really uh, felt that I, I wanted to purchase for a while is a lighter jacket, like a lighter colored jacket for nighttime, mm. something that's safer. And the packable puffies were going for like 70 bucks on Amazon. I'm like, for a little jacket, I'm, I'm not paying that. So I did wait till the Black Friday deals. But I also really was careful to make sure that it was a comparable discount from what I could normally get if I'm going to spend the time and money. The other thing that I really tried to do was kind of plan ahead for the holidays. So thinking about, you know, I have a Keurig machine. I know it's not great for the planet, but I have a Keurig machine. So, you know, we have more guests over the holidays, more coffees consumed, at least in my house. So starting to think about like, what am I going to need? And is there value add to me getting it now? And what's the price difference? I, I really try to stay away from those like order now and we'll send you every two months or every two weeks a refill on, on coffee. And I try to stay away from deals where it's like, you know, you, know, you can pay in installments. If I don't have the dough, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to sort of get into a situation where I'm I'm paying over time. But for me, I was really strategic. I actually thought ahead to the winter and thought, okay, what do I need? And the coat, the coffee. And then I also, um, in the vein of coffee, also ordered some Christmas gifts as well. But um, yeah, I think for me, it's, it's just looking at the price and seeing like, is there an actual comparable difference? And interestingly enough, it's like, sometimes they'll say there's a deal and then I'll go online. I'll be like, that's only like two bucks cheaper than normal. So it's not really worth my time to rush, but uh, I did put in a few purchases this Black Friday for sure. There we go. So you were taking part online. Laura Bain, what I about was. you? Are you taking part in Black Friday shopping? Well, if I participate, it's going to be online, but I'm still a maybe at this point. And it's funny, you know, Elizabeth mentioned those early Black Friday sales. I feel like I've been seeing Black Friday sales for about a Me month too. Um, <laughs> now, but so far they've all been a little bit disappointing. And I'm feeling this year just like I need to be pretty careful with my finances. So... I do have some items that I've been waiting for in our household. We need a new armchair and we've also been uh, wanting an, an espresso machine for a couple of months and they can be quite pricey. So we've been waiting to see if those are going to go on Black Friday sales and disappointingly, 
what we're looking mm-hmm. for has not. And I was looking mm-hmm. at some shoes and most of the ones I was interested in said excluded from offer, you know, so I've, I've so oh. far, I've been a bit disappointed in some of the deals, but I did get a, um, a spam email from Audible this morning saying site-wide sale. <laughs> so I might go on there later and kind of see what kind of discounts I can get on some, some audio books. <laughs> There we go. It, I mean, it just kind of speaks to what that news clip that I played before I, I brought both of you in. It's, it's, it seems like it's a bit more discerning on what what purchases are being made. It's no longer the the spending sprees of uh, uh, the pre-pandemic Black Fridays where people are just buying tons of stuff that you may or may not need or you're just shopping for the sake of the deals. It's basically really focused in, it sounds like, for, for both of you on items that you you've had on your your list for a while and it's just okay let's see if there's a good deal to be had and coffee seems to be a common <laughs> theme trend. i common wonder why <laughs> okay thank you both for chiming in we will check in with you later on in the show but for now i want to hear from you at home are you taking part in black friday shopping today yes online yes in person or no you can vote on twitter at accessible media on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. You can also send an email, feedback at ami.ca or give us a call, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, the Now News panel assembles and we discuss the federal government's fall economic statement that came out on Tuesday. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. back to now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. It's Friday, so that means it's time to assemble the weekly news panel. Let's welcome in the panelists for today's show. We have Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Hello, Michelle. Hello, Alex. And hello, Joita. Hello, everyone. So let's get started with our first topic, which is all about Canada's economic update. The federal government put forth their fall economic statement on Tuesday. The government is still projecting a $40 billion annual deficit. Finance Minister Christian Freeland did announce some new measures aimed at housing, as the federal government is earmarking $15 billion for low-cost loans to developers and $1 billion for affordable housing. The government is also expanding its decision to remove the GST charges off rental developments to include co-op rental housing. Minister Freeland understands that housing is a huge priority for people across the country. Housing is so connected to affordability for Canadians. And that is why our focus is supply, supply, supply. Federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh was unimpressed by the uh, fiscal update. It does not meet the urgency of what Canadians are going through. It doesn't really meet their needs. And it's another example where Canadians are feeling really disappointed about the Liberals not meeting the urgency of what they're going through. And most of the money that they're promising is delayed for off into the future. And Conservative leader Pierre Polyev took aim at Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in the overall economy in his critique of the update. 
He promised to help the middle class. He has demolished the middle class, Mr. Speaker. That is the reality. Inflation, after hitting 40-year highs, is back on the move. The economy is now shrinking. And if you add in per capita terms, it is plummeting, Mr. Speaker. So, Joita, this was your topic. So we'll start with you on this. But what highlights from this statement jumped out to you? Well, I mean, as an overall picture of the statement, there wasn't anything there that was particularly surprising. It certainly continues in the theme of uh, the Liberal government wanting to address affordability for Canadians. We've certainly heard a lot said and done about that in the last little while. What we are, what it sort of is based on is an expectation that inflation will decline over the next year or two. So they are taking a fairly rosy view of the economy and hoping that things will get better. Um, I think uh, one of the things that's really worthwhile to note is that they are now winding up a lot of that pandemic spending. So not surprisingly in in light of the pandemic, there was a great deal of spending from the federal government. They're now looking to wind down a lot of that and hoping that that's going to be one way in which they can balance the books. Uh, but they are running a pretty big deficit here, and they don't really have um, a definitive idea about when that de deficit is going to disappear. So uh, we will li likely talk more about the def deficit down the road. Um, but it is worth noting right off the hub that this fall economic statement does come with uh, costs attached and that there is a, a big deficit to go along with it. Uh, unsurprisingly, I was really interested in many of the housing announcements. That is the bulk of the economic statements where the, the housing announcements are really taking a front and center stage and putting a billion dollars towards affordable housing, including uh, public housing and nonprofit housing is a really significant step. Uh, mm. This is a government that acknowledges after many years of relying solely on the private sector to build housing, that government does have a role to play, in, especially in providing nonprofit and public sector options for housing. So a billion dollar commitment is not nothing. So that was a, a, an important highlight for me. In, it, um, in addition to that, though, uh, we also noticed that $300 million have been put towards co-op housing. And then you said, uh, you also talked about earlier, the removal of, uh, development, of, of development charges. So again, to just see the federal government getting back into building co-op housing after some 30 odd years is also very interesting to me. So many of the announcements around housing have been really interesting to note. Uh, I am a little disappointed to see that although they had some promises made around groceries, such as increasing the powers of the of the Competition Bureau or, um, you know, making more of an investigation happen, it, it doesn't seem like there's anything concrete there on the grocery file. And I know it's something mm -hmm. we've talked about yeah. at nauseum. I know everybody else has talked about it at nauseum. So I, I know myself, I've said we should really bring in maybe some form of price control um, or some kind of price stabilization. But obviously, no one's listening to me. So that wasn't there. But <laughs> the, the housing announcements uh, are really worthwhile. And I think do form the basis of this fall economic statement. And that would be the major highlight for me. Absolutely. Michelle, what about you? What what was the biggest highlights or, or uh, aspects of, of this statement that jumped out to you? Yeah, uh, well, Joita and I are sharing a brain here that I was very struck by their willingness to embrace different kinds of housing models, uh, which is not something we've historically seen. Uh, but to be honest, the biggest aspect that jumped out at me is how much a lot of this funding has been kicked down the road. Um, I grant you this was a very tricky political 
issue for this government to spin. They're under pressure on so many fronts, all very closely tied to the big themes of this fiscal update. There was lots of talk, even within the statement itself, about how the inflationary pressures that Canadians are facing are also being brought to bear on the government. So that uh, limits their their spending, or that's that's the message coming out of the update. But the vast majority of the promise of the promises that were made here have been pushed down the road until 2025, which is when we know the NDP's confidence and supply agreement with the Liberals will run out. So if, like, if basically it's being kicked off to the next election, and that's really my biggest takeaway is that any of um, the the vast majority of the new measures actually won't really fall um, under this government's purview in, in all likelihood. Yeah, that's exactly what my biggest takeaway was. There was a lot of positives. There's a lot of hope, you know, the, as Zoeda laid out really well. It's the investment in affordable housing and, and, and co-op housing and, and, and really putting that emphasis on it. But as you said, Michelle, this has all been like these uh, this funding won't come into effect if, if it ever does, but it's planned to start in 2025, 2026. So this really becomes a, in my mind, it's more of a setup to the next election. In the next mm -hmm. uh, couple of years, it's mm -hmm. about, okay, how do we shrink the deficit? How do we lower this number that we get ourselves in a more favorable position when we do have to go into the next election cycle? And then we can point to these new programs that are coming into effect now, and we, we have something to really put forth as our uh, as our our platform in terms of housing. But I mean, there's a lot that can happen between now and then. And I think it's these are programs that need to get started right away. If, if you really want to see an impact within this decade, there are things that need to be done now to really address housing or else, you know, you, you get to 2025, you get to 2026, and we're still in that same position, even though these programs will have started. Uh, Joita, you talked about the deficit. I, I want to get your your uh, thoughts a bit more on it and, and dive a bit deeper into your thoughts on the deficit and how the Liberals are planning on handling the deficit. Well, according to the Liberals, it's going to increase next year and then gradually decrease over the next six years. Uh, again, I mean, I, I suppose you have to give them a little bit of grace because there was a worldwide pandemic and the economic consequences of the pandemic, which means that every nation across the board is dealing with the with an increase in their deficit and with economic consequences from, flowing from the pandemic. And at least according to Christian Freeland, um, a, in comparison to other G7 countries, Canada is handling its deficit relatively well and our deficit is going down. So I suppose if you would look for a silver lining, that would be, uh, that would be, you know, one of that, that would be a positive way to look at it, but it doesn't change the reality that as long as we have this deficit, it does prevent us from moving forward on some of the other pledges made in this economic statement with the haste and urgency that I think both of you have rightly identified. So it is a problem, but I think it's a problem that isn't unique to Canada. And mm. a certain amount <laughs> of leniency has to be offered in light of the fact that there was a pandemic and we're all dealing with its aftermath. Oh, absolutely. And then the post-pandemic and in inflation that just rocked the global markets and the fact now that we are spending so much money just to service the debt to try to get it under control is certainly something that has to be uh, taken into account. Michelle, what are your thoughts on on the deficit and, and the debt that uh, we're, Canada is dealing with and, and uh, the Liberals plan to address it? 
I'm, I'm going to warn you all that my, my take on this uh, might lack some nuance. This is not my area of expertise. <laughs> and honestly, a bunch of it's coming from a bit of cynicism. I think I can't say in my lifetime because I was alive when the Cretan government managed to balance the books, but certainly in my professional career, every single fiscal update from any government of any stripe that I've ever heard says something similar like the deficit's going to increase next year and then start to ramp down. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm a little, I, I don't know what to make of this kind of messaging most of the time because it's literally what I hear with every single type of statement that comes out. Obviously, it would be good to have a path to controlling the deficit, but I, I also want to, to acknowledge that the, this particular government is facing a lot of pressure to spend because a lot of what is being faced in terms of housing supply does require investment. So you can't, this is one where the government has chosen a position on which to focus. Uh, some governments based on ideology might choose to tackle the deficit more aggressively. This government's made a different choice. And uh, a lot of the reaction, I think, has kind of fallen along partisan lines in terms of responding to that. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I think that's very well put because I, even I can think back to the previous fall economic statements from this this uh, liberal government as well, and it'd be the same thing. Oh well, the the deficit will increase this year, uh, year and the next year, and then we will bring it back into control. It seems to be just a recurring theme of any. And I can't stress this enough. It, different provincial governments, liberal governments, yeah. conservative governments, NDP governments—they all say the same thing with this kind of stuff. Exactly. Exactly. Even even the uh, uh, the conservative uh, conservative plans, as as you say, it's uh, all parties. Whenever they release a uh, fiscal update, it, it contains as an important nuance to include. Now, Joita, you you did mention there were some things that uh, you you felt could have been addressed a bit more. To go a bit deeper in some of the things that you wish was more highly profiled in this uh, update. Well, I mean, there's a few things, right? I mean, I already talked about the the groceries um, and the fact that mm-hmm. the ballooning costs of groceries are not being addressed uh, through anything. I mean, there are a couple of vague promises, but there's nothing really concrete in the fall economic statement. I think that's something that's going to get a lot of Canadians shaking their head in disappointment. Um, and then, of course, we also have um, some very vague promises around eliminating or reducing bank fees. Again, nothing too concrete on that one either. Uh, but again, the big one is the criticism from Jagmeet Singh and the federal NDP about the fact that many of these promises are being, you know, made from far in the future, at least from the point of view of struggling Canadians, 2026 is admittedly a very long ways away for them. So there's that criticism leveled against the fall economic statement that it's just not doing enough uh, quickly enough. And then if you turn to some specific groups, uh, certain environmental groups have have called out the budget for not really doing enough for to promote alternative sources of, of clean energy and that they're promoting carbon capture technology, which obviously from the point of view of these environmental groups works in favor of oil producing com- uh, of oil producers. And also, and this one I, I actually have a lot of sympathy for, a number of environmental groups have also said that this federal false economic statement is pretty slim on providing details for any kind of uh, transit solutions as a response to climate change and environmental degradation. That one I have a lot of sympathy for because a number of people are struggling right now with inadequate Mm. transit, whether you're in urban centers or in rural parts of Canada, especially in rural parts of Canada, actually. And that was an urgent need. And this was a lost opportunity to really do something concrete, even if it was to make a promise that they would fulfill down the road. But to hear very little said about it is disappointing. Um, I feel like 
you'll forgive me for stating the obvious, but I always feel like we could be doing more for people with disabilities. And I uh, admittedly mm-hmm. didn't find anything in the budget that was specifically meant to support people with disabilities, but I will be, I'll be happy to be corrected on that, but apparently there's no <laughs> correction needed. Um, so yeah, those are some of the things. And, um, you know, the, the other piece about the housing that was really interesting, which kind of slipped my mind. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that the, um, wait, Federation of Canadian Municipalities yeah. brought it I'm up. I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there. Oh, you're going to go there. Oh. Infrastructure. <laughs> okay, then go there. <laughs> Infrastructure. Infrastructure mm-hmm. is the biggest thing that's missing, is that all this talk of new housing building and new housing development, uh, municipalities are sounding the alarm, that, and, and rightly so, that you cannot have housing expansion without infrastructure expansion. And any of the measures that have been announced so far are meant to spur housing construction, but there has been no investment made in ramping up infrastructure around, uh, you know, whether it's schools or or neighborhood sewage or roads or all kinds of municipal services that are required to to support the new residents and houses that will be there. That's a really glaring omission. Uh, Joita is quite right. The Confederation of Canadian Municipalities put out a pretty impassioned statement, actually, sort of making that case. Um, And that's probably the biggest area that's just been completely overlooked. And we're already starting to see some of the repercussions of that lack of infrastructure. Uh, mm-hmm. Speaking with friends several times in recent weeks, talked about the condition of schools, the, the crowding within schools. Uh, we've talked about hospital crowding at great length on this panel before. Um, we're already seeing indications that the, the existing infrastructure is not up to the task. And that's before any of these new houses have been built. Right. And and that's going to be something where the, the issue is just going to continue to compound as we, we make our way down the road. Uh, Michelle, I'll start with you on this one, though. Do you, do you think that this fall economic statement moved the needle one way or the other in terms of uh, the, how the public are viewing this Liberal Party? You know, the polling is not really in their favor right now. Do you, no, do you see this economic not. statement? No. Not in the least, no. I, I, no. If anything, I, I think it will uh, not help their polling numbers. But to be honest, I think the bulk of people who don't support the government, for them, I, I suspect this fiscal statement will have just sort of reconfirmed where they already stand. The, the, the popular perception of this government nowadays is one that does not take meaningful action. A fiscal statement that pushes the bulk of the new announcements down the road by two or three years won't do a whole lot to dispel that notion, I don't think. Uh, Joita pointed out the fact that there hasn't been much by way of concrete action on things like groceries. This is That would be an area where I think Canadians would be looking for concrete action that would really hit them directly in their wallets. They don't have any of that. We don't have any new rules on how they're planning to strengthen the Competition Bureau. That's something that they've talked about. It was teased again in this statement, but no real details. So again, Canadians looking for some relief on anything from grocery prices to their cell phone bills uh, aren't finding that right now. So I don't really see this statement doing much to, certainly nothing to help their cause, potentially mm-hmm. something to hurt it, but by and large, I suspect people will be unmoved. And, and Joey, the last word on this goes to you. Do you see this uh, having any impact on on how the public is viewing the Liberal government right now? I agree with Michelle. I don't think it's going to have too much of an impact one way or the other. Those who support the Liberal government will continue to do so, and those who are opposed will continue to do so. I don't think this particular statement is going to change hearts and minds. I think uh, they're just trying not to sort of slide any further down in the polls at the moment. They're just hoping to stick to status quo. Uh, In the lead up to the next election, I think the more interesting question for me anyways is to really think through 
whether rather than trying to shore up promises, they might want to take a long, hard look at Justin Trudeau as the leader of the Liberal Party. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been the face of the party and the Prime Minister for, of Canada for many years now, going back to 2015. So I think if the Liberals really want to make, um, you know, try and improve some of those polling numbers, they're going to have to consider whether a different leader might be needed to take them to the next election. And if they are thinking about a different leader, whether Justin Trudeau is asked to step down or he chooses to step down, which, you know, he hasn't said that he will, but, you know, he may change his mind, uh, then you might be looking at a leadership can contest fairly soon because a new leader will need at least a year to acclimatize themselves and and get underway for uh, the election that we're supposed to have in 2025. So I don't think the fall economic statement is going to be the thing that people look back on when it come election time to, you know, really reflect on this government's legacy. Um, but I do think in addition to some of the things that Michelle has pointed out, that Justin Trudeau himself as the leader of the Liberal Party is going to be um, you know, is that that's going to be where a lot of people actually um, make their decisions about whether they continue to support the Liberals or change their vote. Very good. We'll leave the conversation there. But coming up after the break, we'll talk about more polls because a new poll suggests a majority of Canadians support exemptions on carbon tax pricing for home energy. Michelle and Juita will share their thoughts. You're watching the Now News panel on AMI. Welcome back to the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Mice, joined by Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. A new poll suggests that a majority of Canadians support pauses on carbon tax pricing for home energy. Sarah Ritchie has the numbers. The Liberals announced in October that they're pausing the carbon price on home heating oil for three years to give people time to switch over to electric heat pumps. Polling firm Leger surveyed more than 1,500 Canadians online asking a range of questions about the carbon price and the pause. 63% of respondents say they support the move and it's most popular in Atlantic Canada where the policy will have the biggest impact. About a third of homes in the region use heating oil. 70% of the people surveyed say they would support the government expanding the exemption to include all other forms of home heating fuel. Sarah Ritchie, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. So I found these numbers quite quite surprising and I wanted to bring it to the news panel and, and, and get everyone's thoughts on this topic. So Michelle, we'll start with you on this one. Does it surprise you that a majority of Canadians want wider exemptions when it comes to carbon tax exemptions? Honestly, no, it didn't really surprise me that much just because there seems to be, and I'm pretty sure I've sounded off on this before, there seems to be just such a deep-seated aversion in Canada to paying taxes of any kind. Mm -hmm. Even when people recognize that these taxes would go in support of things that they want, like municipal services or healthcare or the environment in this case, um, that does seem to be just a knee-jerk response of, no, I, I I don't like taxes, regardless of any kind of arguments to support why that taxation system was brought into place. 
In this particular case, the carbon pricing plan is one that has been poorly understood from the get-go. It, it, is, it is relatively complicated. It varies by jurisdiction. It's not an easy matter to boil down for people. Uh, so no, I'm not especially surprised by the fact that a lot of people are pushing back on this, even if it does seem to be at odds with uh, other national polls that suggest that there's broader interest in, in tackling climate change. For me, I, these sorts of numbers that you brought here, Alex, kind of support the sense that people don't necessarily understand the connection between mm -hmm. the carbon pricing plan and what that could do for fighting climate change. And people have just reconciled this by saying, no, I don't really want to deal with additional personal expenses. Hey, Angelita, what about you? Do uh, Are you thinking along the same lines as Michelle, where this is just more, it's the idea of having a tax in general, or is there something else at play here that a majority of Canadians just don't support carbon taxes or want to see wider exemptions made available? Well, I, I think um, Michelle hit the nail on the head. It's not really all that surprising. There is something of an antipathy in Canada towards taxation, and everybody likes taxes so long as they don't have to pay it. So if other people are paying yeah, higher taxes, exactly. great. You know, as long as I'm not off the hook, everybody likes to have an exemption of some kind. But I think Michelle also made a really interesting point about how poorly understood the carbon tax structure in Canada is. It is tremendously opaque exceedingly complicated and has been the subject of a great deal of horse trading back and forth, arguing, squabbling, quibbling, you name it. And I think because of all the bad press, people have really backed off from the carbon tax as a potential solution to climate change. Uh, yeah. And maybe if there was more positive information or just information in general to try and explain what it was and how it worked and how it might actually impact the climate in a positive way, that might resonate with people because you would be hard-pressed to find people, um, at least in the mainstream, arguing against climate change and its detrimental impact. So it's not that people don't want to do things for the climate, but I think this has just become so complicated and gotten so much bad press and so much negativity mm -hmm. that people have backed off completely from the carbon tax. And so and this is kind of what I, I kind of first struggle with because, as you both mentioned, there was a popularity and a majority of Canadians support environmental policies to to help combat climate change. They just, it seems like they just don't want to pay for it, at least in the form of a tax. So what would uh, you like to see done to kind of address this kind of issue of uh, balancing climate change with, you know, financial impacts on on people? Uh, Michelle, where would you like to, what would you like to see done? Uh, there's a reason Dave Brown Consulting will never hire me because I, I, I'm terrible at this sort of thing. Um, I, I will say, like, I, I really do feel that this is a situation that needs to be better understood. Mm. But I think a huge part of the problem as to why it's some of the, the, the federal government messaging or the pro-environment messaging on this might be lost is because this has become a real political hot potato. And Joita talked about all the, the wrangling and horse trading and it even got more than that when there were active court battles fought. Various mm -hmm. provinces took the government to court to try and challenge this. There are premiers who have sometimes even gotten elected on, on promises to challenge the carbon pricing plan from the federal government. Opposition forces have the narrative control here. And that has all the discourse on this has become deeply polarized, highly politicized. It's difficult to find any kind of space to to have conversations about why this works, how this can work. There is evidence and a fair bit of it to support carbon pricing plans as as environment 
uh, saving tools, environment helping tools, mm-hmm. um, even as potential economic drivers for governments. But I don't think that is is well understood, and I don't know if it ever really can be in the current climate, to be honest. Hey, and Jawida, what about you? Like, uh, what would you like to see done around, you know, trying to generate more more financial support for econ- uh, for uh, environmental policies like this? Well, look, Alex, let's let's be fair to people. The last few years have been very tough for people economically. We know that the cost of everything across the board has gone up. And I think a little bit of this disinterest uh, or a, a call for wider exemptions is tied to people's economic realities. Let's just put that mm-hmm. on the table. Yeah. But I also yeah. think in addition to that, um, it's worth noting that at least for, because we've talked about this a few weeks ago, I think, in the context of the Atlantic provinces, uh, this is meant to be a three-year exemption uh, to allow people to switch from um, inefficient sources of heat uh, to electric gas pumps, which are more environmentally friendly. And so if the pause allows people an opportunity to switch from one form of heating to another, bearing in mind that home heating is essential, such as groceries and gas, uh, you know, then it makes sense. It's a bit like a transition period for people. So what would I like to see? I would actually like to see more of the carrot and less of the stick. And by that, I mean, I would actually like us to think more about expanding incentive programs and subsidies to allow people, especially those who are low-income Canadians, to make that switch away from um, from gas and, and, and oil and other sort of you know, and other inefficient sources of home heating or other sources of heat that are uh, bad for the environment and bad for the climate uh, towards cleaner sources of energy. But you're not going to be able to do that unless you heavily incentivize that in some way. So I think if you're going to expand, um, if you're going to expand this exemption to include all sources of heat or other sources of heat, it it could be a good thing for the federal, federal liberals and that it might actually... Um, you know, alleviate some of the affordability crunches that can, the, the affordability crunch that Canadians are dealing with right now. But at the same time, you've really got to incentivize for people to be able to make those switches. Because right now with the carbon tax, what you're doing is you're giving an opportunity to wealthy Canadians to say, okay, you know what, I'm going to take that one-time cost, I'm going to make the switch and I don't have to pay the tax anymore. But what happens to low-income Canadians? Low-income Canadians just don't have that kind of disposable income to make mm. the switch. And so without assistance or without incentives or without subsidies of some kind to help offset some of the costs of, of making the switch, they'll just continue to pay the carbon tax. And that's a way to penalize low-income Canadian families. So we have to really think through the economic realities of the situation and use this exemption, bearing in mind that it would be an exemption for a fixed amount of time, let's say three years, to really incentivize the other side of the equation, which is make the switch, go with clean energy sources. Yeah, and I, I agree with you, Juwita, and I, I was thinking along the same lines. I would also even take it even a step fur- uh, further, and you look at the renewable energies and, and options that are available for Canadians, and you think even just in, in Ontario, we're all based on Ontario, if, if you decide to make a switch to solar and, and, and have renewable electricity, things like that, the, the system is, is so convoluted that you have to basically sell back any of the energy you created back to the system and then they, they provide it to you. So it's this weird like kind of rebate program, whereas other countries, you're, you're allowed to use that energy and then take from the supply or, or sell back any excess that you don't 
need or if you need a bit more during those other uh, kind of like the darker months like winter, you can you can tap into that network. I think even like streamlining that process really provide, as you say, that carrot to people that if you really want to be environmentally conscious, you don't have to deal with all these weird regulations or, or convoluted rules about how to really use renewable energy. You can use it for your home and feel like it's a lot more of a streamlined process. But mm -hmm. uh, before we, we stop this uh, conversation, I, I'm curious, do you, because there's over the last few weeks, there's been a number of really stark warnings around, you know, global warming, climate change, and the impacts that, that we're getting to these stark uh, numbers and, and reports that are coming out. Michelle, do you think Canadians have, and, and people more broadly, have started to tune out these reports about global warming and the impact of climate change? Yeah, that's such a great question. And I, I, I'm afraid I'm afraid of the answer, to be honest with you. Uh, it's hard to say for sure, but my my suspicion is yes. We've been hearing these kinds of warnings ramp up. We've all kind of acknowledged over the course of our comments on this topic that it is now entirely mainstream to acknowledge that we are in a climate crisis. That understanding seems to have permeated most political discourse. Uh, some of the partisan rhetoric has seeped out of that specific argument anyway, that, the, that there is a problem that needs to be addressed. There are tons of different tools of thought as to how to go about doing that, of course. But I do think that as it's gotten normalized in some senses, people have started to tune it out. Now, on the flip side, though, are the more tangible reminders that we talked about over the summer that I think can kind of recapture people's attention, although in some cases it's too late. Those tangible reminders are things that we've, that we've all faced, like days when the air quality is compromised because a forest fire is way, way far away from where people are or f active flooding, severe weather events more generally. Um, these sorts of things, I think, recapture people's attention, but in the worst possible way. And I do fear that with those more abstract reminders that people aren't necessarily paying as much attention. Yeah. And Joita, what about you? Do you, do you feel that uh, people have, for the most part, have started to tune out these these warnings or, or kind of reports that are highlighting the real impact that climate change is going to have and already having? No, I don't think people have exactly tuned it out. I think people understand that climate change has deeply devastating and detrimental consequences for their lives. But with that said, um, no one's exactly rushing to change their home heating systems to do anything about the climate, right? Uh, or no one's really folding themselves into a pretzel following recycling programs to the letter. And I think it leads to something a little more complex than simply people tuning it out. I, I'm sure there is an element of fatigue and maybe even cynicism and helplessness in face of the crisis. I'm sure all of that is there too. But if you want to say solution-focused here, then I think the real problem, at least in the context of our conversation, has to do with the fact that government programs are too convoluted and complex. And so when people do try to make changes in their lives, uh, they find it increasingly difficult to do so. Uh, this this home heating example is actually a good one. Another one would be, you know, if you, let's say, wanted to switch from a traditional vehicle to owning an electric car, well, good luck mm, to you because they're yeah. ruinously expensive and, and the infrastructure mm -hmm. to, to charge your car is just not there. It's, you know, not, it's there. not as yeah. present as it should be. So that's another really good way in which the government is putting obstacles in the way of people who want to change their behavior. So as, as we turn our minds to, you know, thinking through what can be done here or, you know, whether people are tuning it out. I'm not sure people are tuning out the messaging around climate change, but they are tuning out their government and, and realizing that the government is just not falling in 
step and doing this in an effective or efficient way. They're tuning out our decision makers, and that's the problem. And I, I again, I, I sort of belabored the point about incentives and, and rebates and things, but I do think that's going to become very important if we want people to get on side with this. In fact, you know, I, the, I, with the caveat, this is not my beat. I'm not even sure if there's legislation across Canada that is uh, that requires new homes to be built that to be energy efficient. And if either of you knows the answer to that, please enlighten me. But as far as I could tell, based on my cursory research, there really isn't there aren't really standards across Canada that require new builds to be energy efficient either. So that's just you know one step the government could take uh, to ensure that we're, they're meeting promises around the climate. Now again, if you know if I misread something or misunderstood feel free to correct me but i really couldn't find anything on the internet so well and i i know we, we had a conversation uh dave and arno uh, kopecky had a conversation earlier this week around building codes and how environmental uh practices and and more uh, more green home construction is really kind of the way of the future so this is kind of building off of uh, previous conversations we have currently i i believe you are correct Juita, that there isn't a uh, uh, nationwide uh, rules or regulations around new constructions and the the standard of environmental um, kind of, um, I guess, processing and, and energy that is required. But uh, there are organizations and the task force uh, that Arno uh, profiled is looking to change that. But we will leave this conversation for now because we have one more topic after the break. And it all involves the media coverage surrounding the vehicle explosion at the Rainbow Bridge this week. Michelle and Juwita will share their opinions on the political commentary that accompanied this coverage. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. I'm Alex Smythe. We, I am joined by Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta as part of the Now News panel, and we have one more topic to discuss. On Wednesday afternoon, an incident at the Rainbow Bridge border crossing between Ontario and New York forced the closure of the border for hours. Stephen Portnoy has the latest on the situation. Despite initial concerns that the car may have been packed with explosives and the blast might have marked an attack, officials now insist there was no nexus to terrorism and the matter is being treated by local police as a traffic investigation. A Homeland Security document obtained by ABC News describes the two people who died in the fiery car crash as a husband and wife who have no criminal history and are not on any government watch lists. So that situation unfolded rapidly, causing speculation and theories to spread like wildfire. Now, Michelle, this was your topic you brought forth, and you wanted to explore how this story was covered in the media. So what surprised you about the coverage of this story? Yeah, well, I guess surprise is a bit of a strong term, and I know we're very pressed for time, so I'll keep it tight. But I if you looked at there, there were there was a definitely a bit of a trend in terms of uh, outlets of a specific editorial event who immediately went to the terrorism route. They immediately jumped in and started saying that it is terrorism. They had experts coming in talking about Canada's porous border. You had political candidates getting in the mix talking about a terror attack coming from Canada. So lots of of claims that were just being put out there that were 
quite promptly proven to be utterly false. And there was very little effort, it seemed, to do that fundamental fact-checking that uh, I, I suspect struck a number of us when seeing that coverage. What really struck me as interesting, though, was how easily some of those messages that I just mentioned could be spun uh, based on aspects of Canada's perceptions in the world, mm. uh, the ways in which Canada can play to to the voter blocks in question sometimes. Um, those I, I, I find myself interested of late as to how messages come to be spun and how, how they come about. And this really jumped out at me given some of the issues that we've talked about on this panel before, about Canada's efforts to ramp up migration. Obviously, there's heightened sensitivity around terrorist attacks, given all the rest of the global context at the moment. So uh, a certain amount of, of initial concern is understandable. But there was a lot there, too, that, that's equally concerning in a very different way. Yeah, it, it seemed to just uh, leap almost polit uh, uh, um, like immediately into this political commentary realm, as you mentioned, the, the leaps uh, to terrorism, to the border uh, security with, with Canada. It, it didn't take much for that conversation to really get started. Joita, were there surprises for you and how it was covered or how quickly a political commentary really seeped into this conversation? No, no, no surprises there. I mean, certain publications and news media with certain editorial bands, as Michelle pointed out, um, tend to um, have a tendency to peddle opinion as facts without actually doing the fact checking that's required there. Um, but also it is the kind of incident bearing in mind that borders have been a deeply politicized issue in the U.S. for a very long time and a wedge political issue is that it's not entirely surprising either that for politicians, this represented a golden opportunity to spin the rhetoric and stir up discontent about Canada's porous borders, bearing in mind that a lot of this has this, has this genesis in conservative U.S. America or American belief that Canada's borders are very porous and that that Canada isn't strict enough about their immigration policies, which in turn puts the U.S. at risk. That's the conservative position around borders. Yeah. So for the Vivek Ramaswamy's of the world or the Ted Cruz's of the world, this is another opportunity. And they take that opportunity, as politicians do, uh, to stir up discontent around an issue that they believe will advance their political position. So nothing about this was really all that surprising, to be frank with you. Now, I, I wonder, too, it's like in, in terms of a situation like this, because you mentioned uh, two Republican candidates who uh, who came out very quickly commenting on border security, on, on terrorism, and even though those that was not the case here that was th this was uh, unfortunately the death of a couple who were in the states who uh, uh the were coming from the states potentially going to canada the investigation is still underway in that regard but it, it is it hard to hold accountability for news organizations when they they present these guests in form of commentary it, it provides a, a layer of protection almost to to have that journalistic fact and integrity when you say, well, this is just a, a commentary on a situation that's unfolding, Michelle. 
that's always a complicating factor. We've, we've talked before, I think, about the, the, the risks or the, the lack of public understanding and distinction between reporters, reporters and columnists. And that, I think, is uh, a gap in understanding that some outlets definitely, by saying this is commentary and, and expert opinion rather than, than reportage. But those are difference of approach between different media outlets. And... Uh, you could have long impassioned arguments about this. Uh, what I find kind of interesting is something that Joita alluded to in her comments when, when talking about the, the Vivek Ramaswamy's and some of the other political candidates who have jumped on to the issue of Canada's border as 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 a bit of a political hot potato and tried to leverage that for their own gain. That's kind of where this interest, this issue, piques my interest the most. I'm not shocked by the. the by which specific outlets went in the direction that they did. But it's this kind of mainstreaming of the spin on, on Canadian issues. Mm-hmm. Because there's no question that Canada and the U.S. have a hugely important relationship. It makes a certain amount of sense that people, that politicians will try to make hay of aspects of that relationship because it is a big and important one. Um, but it's that mainstreaming of, of some of the discourse around Canada that kind of troubles me and and makes me a little anxious about what's coming in the upcoming U.S. election. I, I don't know to what degree this particular issue will take off. They obviously have very, very many other big fish to fry. Um, but I do think it's a matter of when and not if in my lifetime some big issue related to Canada becomes a more polarizing and, and prominent U.S. one. Um, and and that the, the tone of that commentary uh, has certainly jumped out at me in recent years. Right. I, I wish we had more time to really dive into this conversation, but unfortunately, we're really up against the clock, so we'll have to end the conversation here for now. So uh, I, I want to thank both the panelists, uh, uh, Michelle McQuaig. Thank you. Michelle is the news My pleasure. editor at the Canadian Press. Have yourself a great weekend. You too. Take care, Alex. Yeah, take care. And Joita Gupta, thank you. Joita is the, the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. Joita, you have yourself a great weekend. Thank you. You as well. Okay. And so coming up after the break, we'll have the regional news update and Brock Richardson will stop by to give you a highlight and recap of the Para Pan Am games. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smyton for Dave. It is Friday, November 24th, 2023. Coming up on the second hour of the show, AMI has a couple of internship and apprenticeship opportunities for you. Greg David gives you the details. And a three-part special is coming to Disney Plus to celebrate the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who. Laura Bain takes us for a ride in the TARDIS and with the entertainment report. But before we get to any of that, it's time for the regional news update. We begin in BC, where the mayor of Surrey is outraged following the release of a high-risk child sex predator into their community. Lisa Laporte files this report. 
Surrey RCMP issued a public warning about 61-year-old Brian Abrosimo after his release from prison on Thursday, saying he is at high risk to reoffend. Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke is asking residents to stay extra vigilant, saying it's reprehensible the child sex predator was released into the community. Abrosimo pleaded guilty in 2005 to using his van to run down the 11-year-old and her teenage friend while they were riding bicycles in Langley. He then dragged the younger girl into his vehicle as she screamed where he sexually assaulted her. Lisa Laporte, the Canadian Press. Over to the Prairie now where there are a couple stories making news in Alberta. Uh, Premier Danielle Smith is facing, facing backlash for not following through with her promise to hold in-person meetings with residents over the plan to leave the Canada Pension Plan. Smith says that many have already shared their view. The uh, last of the uh, online telephone town halls occurred. We've had an, an extraordinary number of people participate in them. I believe we're up to about 75,000, nearly 100,000 people who've participated online. NDP House Leader Christina Gray says that's not good enough. People are being ignored by this Premier. When will they start listening? When will they commit to consulting in person? And will they abandon this foolish Alberta pension plan and stop causing stress yes. to Alberta seniors? Over to Manitoba now. A bill to temporarily cut the fuel tax in Manitoba is now before the legislature. If it passes, the bill will suspend the 14 cent a liter tax from January 1st to the end of June. Finance Minister Adrian Sala says the pause could be extended further. We're committed on this uh, for a six-month period. Um, as we get closer to that six-month period, uh, we will be evaluating uh, to determine uh, whether we extend it. And so that's it for the regional news update. It's now time for Sports Chat with Brock Richardson. Okay, Brock, another full day of sports when it comes to the Para Pan Ams, and you wanted to provide an update from Santiago. Yes, so we're going to talk about some of the individual sports who had some medals yesterday. Alex Hayward has won the bronze in paracycling track, 1,000 meters individual time trial. Anthony uh, Bouchard won the gold in the men's uh, 100 meter T52, and he broke uh, a Para Pan Am record that was on the track. So that's a very good thing as well. Uh, Jigadev Gill won the bronze medal in the men's 100 meter freestyle in the pool. Uh, so those were your individual medals yesterday. If we look at uh, goalball, we will start with the Canadian women's program, and they played the defending champion of the Para Pan Am Games, Brazil. They played an outstanding game. They won this game 4-2. Uh, to two. They took advantage of a couple of penalty shots that Brazil uh, uh, gave them, if you can put it that way. I will also tell you this, Alex. They played really like the underdog. And I say this in a, in a, uh, a confident term because... They played really relaxed. I think they went in recognizing we're the underdog. We're we're you know just gonna play our game, and they did exactly that. And they took advantage 
of some opportunities. And that's what you have to do in those situations to make it easier on yourself. On the men's side, uh, this was a tougher game. They had a semifinal game against the United States. It was 11-4, to the final. So they will go on to play uh, for the bronze medal. This is Goalball's last opportunity to qualify for Paris. So there will be no Goalball representative on the men's side, sadly, for Canada. So that's a bit unfortunate. Um, if we move on to the wheelchair basketball side of things, the women played their semifinal game against uh, Argentina. They had another really dominating game. It was 76-36, the final score there. The team has really not faced any adversity. They're going to be going up against the United States uh, today at 5 p.m. Eastern. So that's going to be their first sort of tough test. Again, this is uh, one of those, you know, if you win the gold medal, you go on to Paris uh, 2024. I'm not sure if there's another opportunity uh, for wheelchair basketball to get in on one of those last chance tournaments. And finally, uh, wheelchair rugby, uh, they had a real uh, debilitating loss against the U.S. and they will take home silver in the tournament. And the U.S. really played a different style of game. They were quicker. They were more hungry to the ball yesterday. They really wanted this and Canada just sort of fell flat. So that's kind of the update uh, for you. I can tell you the total right now as we sit here is 5 gold, 9 silver and 15 bronze for a total of 29 overall medals. Uh, yeah, it's a, a mix of some really positive news, especially in the individual sports side. And then with the, the women's goalball team uh, breaking through against uh, uh, Brazil. But uh, unfortunate when it comes to uh, wheelchair rugby and, and the men's goalball side. So a bit of a, a, the, the positive and the negative there, Brock, unfortunately. But we continue to cheer on uh, all the athletes representing Canada in Santiago, Chile. Uh, but now it's also time to recap the NFL Thanksgiving games that were played yesterday. Brock, three games starting at 12.30, going all the way into the late night. I mean, if you ever want a fun jam-packed uh, Thursday, the NFL Thanksgiving games are where it's at. What were your big takeaways? What games did you really want to uh, narrow in on and focus on? Uh, for me, I really enjoyed the uh, Green Bay-Detroit Lions game, Green Bay coming out on top of that game. Uh, you know, I really think that a lot of people are underestimating uh, what Green Bay has can do, and I think they're kind of maybe going to sneak into the playoffs here. We'll see how things go, but that was the game for me that was the most entertaining. What about you yesterday? Did you have one that you circled? Oh. Well, I, I think the Green Bay-Detroit game was certainly the biggest surprise. Obviously, Detroit was coming into the game having only lost two two games so far. They were they were leading the division in the same division with the Packers, whereas Green Bay, they were like four and six. They, they were inconsistent as inconsistent could be. They were missing some star players, but it didn't stop them from really uh, playing lights out defense getting a upset victory over the Lions. I, I think this is a trend for Lions because last or on Sunday, they nearly lost a game to my Chicago Bears, which are one of the worst teams in the league, but they managed to squeeze out a victory at the end. So this is kind of a concerning trend now that the last couple games, Detroit has not looked like their usual dominant self. And maybe it's teams starting to figure out 
how to play this team or figuring out that offense or maybe it's just the the Green Bay Packers as you say Brock they're starting to put things together they're starting to get used to the new system Jordan Love is starting to kind of get comfortable being under center uh we'll see the other two games I mean Dallas uh, blew out Washington that wasn't really a surprise and then San Francisco dominated Seattle again not too much of a surprise I think the bigger surprise is just how well the defense played in both of those games but yeah certainly Green Bay certainly a surprise I I almost think the bigger surprise though Brock was at the end of the game that the the uh that first game against uh, the Lions they didn't even have turkey for the traditional Thanksgiving game they they uh, Jordan Love who was uh, uh awarded I guess the, the drumstick or would have been awarded a drumstick looked a bit disappointed not to be able to chow down on the some turducken. turkey yeah the turducken it's a tradition <laughs> there with uh, John Madden yeah I mean I I enjoy the way they do the the Thanksgiving uh, broadcast and you know I, I I'm pretty sure it was Aaron Andrews who was uh interviewing uh, and she kind of looked a little bit surprised of like there's no turkey you know like here there's no turducken and it's you know yeah. tradition but I, yeah, I well, also we're, the... we're going to give you a donation in your name uh, instead for for charity. It's like okay, but kind of want a turkey like. I actually also think the one sort of cool thing that came out of yesterday because they uh, celebrated John Madden, who was big on the Thanksgiving uh, games, who was a broadcaster mm-hmm. for many many years, and they used the coin, uh, the 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 coin that they flip at the beginning of the game for heads or tails to determine who's get the ball. They used the coin and they had a special coin and one side for heads was John Madden's face and the other side was tails um, for the Turducken. So I thought that that was kind of a unique way to do the games and something that I I think a lot of people didn't really realize was going to be a thing. And it was kind of like, oh, that's a cool coin. I wouldn't I wouldn't mind getting my hands on one of those, but who knows? And even beyond that, all the players, their jerseys had uh, a patch with that uh, um, profile of his face that was used on, on that coin as well. And maybe... And and I agree. I I would like to see the Thanksgiving games kind of become a bit more of a John Madden like Memorial Thanksgiving game uh, going forward. As you say, yeah. he was so synonymous with the the Thanksgiving games. There was always the three games to play. Dallas always played. Detroit typically played, and there would be a, a third uh, a pairing of teams that would play uh, in the late night. But yeah, he was always there with the turkey legs and and something very iconic for that game of football and. It, it, the the fun's not going to stop because we have, an, for the first time, another game tonight, a Friday night football game. Uh, very quickly before we get out of here, Brock, who are you uh, predicting? Is it the Jets versus the Dolphins? Who are you taking in that game? It's got to be the Dolphins. The Dolphins uh, really got to get on a roll here and continue their ways of, of doing things. The Jets, even though they've surprised a few teams here and there, I think... I think the Dolphins really got to take this, and I don't necessarily think it's going to be much of a game. I think if the Dolphins play even half as good as they can, I think they'll take this by two touchdowns easily, I would say. The wide margin, Brock, with the not-so-bold prediction of of the dominating and surging Dolphins beating the Jets without their star quarterback. Brock, have yourself a great weekend, and uh, you'll be back chatting with Dave on Monday. Indeed, I will. Have a great weekend. Okay, that was Brock Richardson at the Sports Desk. And coming up after the break, we 
get to explore the world of entertainment as a three-part special is coming to Disney Plus to celebrate the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who. Laura Bain will take us for a ride in the TARDIS. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe in for Dave. It's time now for the weather report with Elizabeth Moeller. Elizabeth, you have your focus and your attention on the East Coast and the stormy conditions out in Newfoundland. I certainly do. There are dangerous travel conditions and unfortunately some power outages in Newfoundland that are possible this weekend due to some freezing rain. The weather pattern in Atlantic Canada will continue to be active, bringing wintry and icy mixed conditions to Newfoundland as November comes to a close. Until today, there is a risk of ice buildup, making travel a little bit difficult, particularly for those who don't have winter tires, or as I like to say, winter cane tips. Fre freezing rain warnings are in place for parts of the island and drivers are advised to be cautious on the roads as well as walkers. In addition, heavy rain is expected on the island's south coast, posing a risk of local ice flooding in low-lying areas. We can expect up to 80 millimeters of rain that could fall by the end of today. This wintry weather started on Thursday and is going to spread across the region throughout the day. Around five hours of freezing rain is anticipated, especially along the Trans-Canada Highway from Gander to Cornerbrook, with a warning in effect to that area. This system is also expected to bring a widespread 20 to 30 millimeters of rain before moving out. So grab your brawlies, grab your raincoats, your rain hats, and put an extra cane tip in your bag. I find when it gets really snowy, sometimes my cane tip gets buried and falls off. That's always a very good tip, Elizabeth. Thank you. We'll check ha -ha, in later. Tip, cane tip. I got it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I was thinking I was going to sneak by. Uh, don't go anywhere. We'll check in with you for the roundtable. But thank you, Sounds Elizabeth. Great. And in a moment, we will have Laura Bain here to share the entertainment report. But first, it's officially Black Friday. Here's reporter Mike Dubusky with Tech Trends. Black Friday in general is a great time of year to shop for any sort of electronics on your shopping list. Valentina Palladino is the senior commerce editor at Engadget. She says today is especially good for the gamers on your shopping list. We usually will see a lot of really good bundles where you can get a game console like the Nintendo Switch or the PlayStation 5 with a game that you essentially get the game for free. But that's not all. Tech toys, what I'd like to say, are drones and action cams and VR headsets. Um, all of those kinds of things tend to drop to really close to the lowest prices ever on Black Friday or the absolute lowest that we've seen. And she says sales this year may not be limited to one day. We've seen a lot of Black Friday deals, things that drop either right before Black Friday or on Black Friday, extend through Cyber Monday. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. 
And now time for the entertainment report because fans of Doctor Who can look forward to an upcoming three-part 60th anniversary special. And Laura Bain has the details. Hello, Laura. Hi, Alex. Yeah, that's right. So uh, sort of the big news around these 60th anniversary specials is the return of fan favorite Dr. David Tennant, who played the 10th Doctor from 2005 to 2010. So he's coming back for these episodes only as the 14th Doctor before he hands it off to Shudi Gatwa to play the 15th Doctor. So for those who kind of aren't in the know, Doctor Who is a Time Lord and has the ability to regenerate. So it has not been the same actor playing Doctor Who for the last 60 years. There's been 15 of them. Uh, so former Doctor's companion Donna Noble, played by Catherine Tate, also fan favorite, will be coming back to make a return for these special episodes. So lots of nostalgia there. These episodes are going to be available for streaming in Canada on Disney Plus, with the first part titled The Star Beast dropping tomorrow, November 25th, and then a weekly release schedule for the remaining episodes. So Doctor Who, it's actually the Guinness World Record holder for the longest running sci-fi series of all time. It definitely has a cult following. I'm wondering, Alex, do you consider yourself a Whovian? I am not a fan of Doctor Who. That's not that's not to say anything negative about it. I, I know it is wildly popular within the sci-fi, nerdy, geeky community. I've just never really kind of sat down and watched it. I have a lot of friends who who have and, and really enjoy it. To me, anytime I see clips from the series, it just seems so hokey and 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 kind of just very kind of I, I yeah I I think hokey is the the term I I kind of yep. stick with it the the it's a, it has a very uh specific aesthetic and and obviously that was largely built on a very limited budget when it first started and they've kind of kept that aesthetic that that um kind of that style throughout the show through 60 years I mean it's impressive Obviously, any show that can can last for 60 years and different iterations and different actors and different writing uh, partners and, and creators, it is a feat that needs to be celebrated. But in terms of the actual show itself, I can't say I am. But Laura, it sounds like you clearly are a, a fan. Uh, yeah, you, yeah, I'm going to make my case here, Alex. You got to check it <laughs> okay. out. Um, no, I'm definitely, I'm not a super fan. I did get quite into the show uh, for a couple of years, kind of around that 2010 time period. Um, I agree. It has the word, when you were speaking, the word campy was coming to mind. I think it can mm -hmm. have a little bit of like a campy aesthetic that's maybe part of its charm. But something that I like so much about the show is that there are a variety of different episode types. Um, so some episodes I would say are like horror and I don't like that. I find this show is just at the peak, a little bit beyond the peak of what I can handle in terms of scariness sometimes. <laughs> but then there are also episodes that are more like historical fiction. And those are my absolute favorite type of episodes. And I love seeing the different filming locations that they go to around Britain. Uh, but I also find that the show deals with kind of big existential questions about the meaning of life. And it also has quite a bit of like emotional pull and heart to it. So that's the reason why 
I think it's worth checking out. Uh, also think the Time Lord thing is just genius because that show can just keep going forever when you don't have to worry about canceling due to like losing your main actor. Um, yeah. But, you know. And, it, and it's also <laughs> Sorry, too, like I, on top of that, I mean, it's like, yeah, you can change your 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 lead actor, but it's also it's like if let's say you, you bring somebody in and they're just not working well, then their run can be a shorter run and, and so it's yes. like it, it, it provides that uh kind of that flexibility and i think that's part of the magic of why this show has been so successful for so long laura oh totally and same thing with the doctor's companions you know they're always changing out every couple seasons as well so you're always kind of getting some some freshness to the show yeah, is there uh, any shows where you kind of do consider yourself to be a super fan Oh, well, there, there, there's been a number. Currently, I would say there's, I, I wouldn't really call myself a super fan of any one show in particular. I really like The Boys and, and their spin, the spinoff of The Boys uh, Gen V that came out this year. I, I, I really enjoy that series, but I'm also not one that's gone and read all the graphic novels and, and, and kind of followed the, the backstory of everything. I, I've, I've just kind of enjoyed the content for what it is. But if I'm gonna like kind of look back through through the catalog of all the shows I I used to consume, and there's been a lot of them, I would say probably like a show like Supernatural was one that I really got very much into. The, another sci-fi, slightly horror um, kind of action uh, uh, show back in the the 2000s, all filmed in BC and in and around the Vancouver area. Uh, that was a show I loved. And I recently went back and rewatched the entire series, I think a couple, a year or so ago. And it definitely has its highs and lows. I'm not going to deny it, but I still love it. I, I just, uh, there's some shows you just can't get enough of. Yeah, you know, I that's one that I'm definitely familiar with, but I haven't actually seen, so I might have to go and check it out. I normally stick to, like, the comedy drama or dramedy uh, mm. sitcom sort of genre with my watching. Um, Doctor Who was a little bit of an exception, but there is something about that genre. I think that kind of lends itself to super fandom more than maybe, like, sitcoms do. I, I will warn you, if you said that Doctor Who is almost at the peak for horror, I would be very careful going into Supernatural because especially in those early seasons, there are some that are just downright frightening episodes. So viewer discretion be, be advised there, Laura, just a heads up. I appreciate that. <laughs> it sounds like something I should not watch before bed and maybe like definitely not if I'm going to be like by myself in the house. Absolutely. Absolutely. But in the meantime, thank you so much for this. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. Thanks, Alex. You too. That was Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report. And coming up after the break, we assemble the roundtable. Ramia Muthan's here and Elizabeth Moeller is here as well, posing the question around Uber regulations in Toronto. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI.
Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI and AMIplus.ca if you want to stream in audio. I'm Alex Mike in for Dave Brown. It's now time for the round table. So we're going to welcome in Elizabeth Moeller and Ramia Muthan. Elizabeth, you want to talk all about regulations that are being explored for Uber in Toronto. Yes, I do. The relationship between Rideshare Uber and uh, the City of Toronto has taken a bit of a, a turn for the worst, shall we say. Um, there are new questions about the city's taxi industry as well as emissions for carbon. Um, Uber is um, going to be capped or proposed to be capped at about 52,000 drivers. That's a proposal from the city. And I know we've talked transportation quite a bit on the roundtable before, but I wanted to kind of dive in a little bit deeper today. And I wanted to talk about what do we think about the cap, the proposed cap on the number of drivers? Do we do we agree with this uh, proposed decision or not? And talk a little bit more about our experiences with Uber. So Rami, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw the ball over to you. What are your thoughts on capping the number of drivers in a given city? I mean, to be honest, I don't know what the intention is supposed to result with. Like, you know, what are we really trying to better? I think there are um, other priorities, uh, lots and lots of other priorities when it comes to um, accessibility training or just awareness of different kinds of things uh, like that we can improve and prioritize basically um, before trying to cap driver numbers or figure out, you know, if this is going to make the difference that we needed to. Um, maybe there needs to be a better vetting process even for drivers, but, uh, you know, that's much more of a complex statement. Yeah, I, I agree, Ramya. Like, it, it's, it's, kind of puzzling what your what the the end goal is 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 it to help support the taxi uh, uh network in in toronto in the city to provide a bit more support for them and uh kind of push a bit of favoritism towards the the established taxi uh services over the ride share uh, and ride hailing uh, network that's really kind of grown and, and developed itself and, and created its own uh, niche market in Toronto over the last uh, like half decade or so or decade. I, I, I too am a bit concerned and, and worried and it's like, I, I agree there's other, uh, if, if it's concerns about the vehicles and, and the, uh, the quality, then that's one thing you can, you can address in other ways. But I, I think they're, if they're talking about emissions and and how high uh, drivers are being hired it's it, it seems like well we're we're taking away opportunity for uh you know the 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 residents and the uh people of the city to to access a quick and easy uh kind of ride to get around the city part of the reason why Ubers and rideshares are so popular is because the infrastructure for public transit isn't that great you know there there's other cities around the world that Uber and other ride-sharing uh, apps aren't that popular because the infrastructure is there that people don't need to rely on a car to get from point A to point B within a city. But Toronto is not that way. So you there has to be some sort of change here, whether you start really investing in, in public transportation, which is such a slow process, or you allow people to access ride-sharing uh, apps like Uber, like Lyft, like mm. some of these other ones to to kind of fill the gap that there currently exists in the city. Elizabeth, where, what do you think of this uh, this move by the city? 
Yeah, it's concerning to me on a couple levels. So if we cap the number of drivers, my concern is that, of course, there'll be more demand and fewer drivers, and that will that will jack up prices. And we're already dealing with, and we've talked about this on the show lots, you know, cost of living going up, cost of transportation. I also have a concern about, you know, at peak times from an accessibility perspective, like sometimes you aren't able to access public transit, so you are calling that ride, um, you know, through Uber. So I worry about sort of the demand piece. I think, you know, absolutely, you know, to Ramia's point, to me, it's not where the priority should be. It should be about um, training of drivers. It should be about sort of vetting of drivers. It should be thinking about getting more accessible Ubers on the road. Like if if we were to ha- in a magical you know world where we were consultants, if we were to think about redesigning Uber, certainly I think one of the things that does need to ha- happen is sort of a, a set number of accessible cars on the road at any given time, and that's not happening. So I feel um, some concern about this, certainly from a cost you know POV where we think about okay, is this going to impact people, especially as we come into the holidays. Yeah, so uh, we've, we've talked about Uber and ride sharing and some experiences that we've had, but uh, Ramya, what is your, your preferred method about getting around the city? Is it public transit? Is it a ride sharing app like Uber and why? Oh gosh, I can never say it's public transit is my favorite means of option. Maybe the <laughs> most used means, Alex, fair, but fair, uh, fair. it's definitely not ideal. Um, yeah, in a in a quick uh, pinch, and also if I'm not trying to take three buses, I will end up mm-hmm. having um, an Uber experience, and that's what I was thinking of too. Like I was thinking of Uber when I was answering the question earlier, because you know there are terrible experience still that people have people with disabilities have and Mm -hmm. you know we we put uber up against cab um services right like proper cab companies in in terms of comparison but really the experience can be quite uh different and you know for the worse for a lot of people with disabilities because a you don't get drivers trained b you don't feel compensated or validated for your bad experiences with um drivers and things like that anyways i'm I'm ranting again but um i choose uber but i am in a privileged position where i don't have a guide dog i don't have a um an assistive uh motor device or anything like that and i could just you know take whatever car comes my way and maybe with a, a couple different notes and caveats find them they find me and be on the ride but that's mm-hmm. obviously not the case for a lot of us yeah, and, and that's obviously an, always an important uh, caveat to include in any conversation around, you know, transit, especially for uh, when we explore the disability lens that people's needs are different and their experiences based on their needs definitely vary. Right. I, I think there is some something uh, nice about the ride sharing because if you are denied service, you you have a record of who the driver was, what their vehicle was, that you can actually file a more informed complaint. Whereas if it's a a cab driver that just says no, you don't have their information readily available and you may not be able to get their their license plate number or or something like that if there is. Because I I have uh, read many stories of, uh, you know, uh, rejected rides from from cab drivers as well, even though they're the probably the percentage is is far less than what you'd get on a, a typical Uber ride. But for me, Uber is still king. I, as you mentioned in your your response, Ramya, I I don't want to go on three different buses. I don't want to spend an hour and a half to get from 
you know, downtown Union Station to the AMI office, you know, sometimes it, it can be like that because you have to switch different modes of transportation multiple times to, to get to one destination where it can be a 20 minute ride in an Uber. I'm there. It's direct. It's door to door. I appreciate it. And I can afford to do it. Unfortunately, not everyone can, yeah. but I, I still find it shocking sometimes too. Like there is those aspects of like surge pricing because that can play a role where sometimes a cab is even cheaper than an Uber, which is an, mm -hmm. which to me is still surprising because yeah. cabs usually are more expensive, but uh, that still comes into play. Elizabeth, we'll give you last word on this. Yeah, I would say it depends. So certainly if it's a quick, straightforward route, public transit for sure, um, but not just the, the amount of buses, but the length of bus ride, and you touched on this, that would deter me um, you know, from, from taking public transit. So I would say public transit is preferable if it's convenient and short and direct, but I would say Uber or Lyft if there's going to be a, a long wait or if the bus takes a long time. Um, and of course, none that we touched on, I do love the Heel Toe Express or walking. I, if I can walk somewhere, I will. It's a nice way to not put a carbon footprint into the earth and to get out and get some exercise. So I'm going to land on Heel Toe Express for my last word. Very good. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being co-host today. Thank you for bringing this topic forward. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. You as well. And Rambia, before we let you go, you got to let me know what's coming up on today's episode of Kelly and Rambia. Sure, I will. It's the Friday edition, so we're talking app update with John Beeler. He, you know, updates us on tech news and things. Uh, so today, one of the topics is Google Chrome starting to limit ad blockers in 2024. So not only do we want to know how it works, but why? Why would they do this for us? We want ad blockers. Um, also, the Para Pan Am games are wrapping up as we head into the last weekend, and Brock Richardson is going to catch us up on what's going on. Um, we've got some major qualifiers. Uh, event or qualifier pressure for Canada as well, especially for the goalball team. So we'll get an update. And also on the chatty bookshelf, Ryan, who is telling us about a few airports that have libraries that welcome passengers, no matter if you're going domestic or international. So that's going to be a fun convo. Ooh, very interesting. I'm definitely going to have to check that out. That is Kelly and Ramya, 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI TV. Ramya, have yourself a wonderful day. Have a good weekend, Alex. You too. That was Ramya Amuthan. And coming up after the break, AMI has a couple of internship and apprenticeship opportunities for you. Greg, uh, Greg David gives you all the details. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. TV. I'm Alex Smythe and for Dave. Are you interested in learning more about how content is created at AMI? Well, are you also looking for a career in broadcasting? Because AMI's paid internships and apprenticeships may be right for you. And AMI communication specialist Greg David has all the details. Good morning, Greg. How are you doing? I'm good, Alex. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. So, Greg, I think one of the, the big questions people have, what's the difference between the internships and the apprenticeships at AMI? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I had to look that up myself. Uh, so if, for the apprenticeship, if you are, are enrolled in a training institution for an audio or television career, or if you're interested in developing broadcast skills or pursuing a feature career in content creation, that is the paid apprenticeship program. The paid internship program is if you are currently a student who is taking a broadcast uh, you know, broadcast program and are interested in doing an, uh, an internship at AMI. So students are for the internship and apprenticeship is for anybody. You could be in school, it could be, or it could be like a second career that you want to get into and you have an interest and want to learn more. So that's the difference. Yeah, and it's such a, a unique opportunity because, uh, you know, for someone who, who may be interested and doesn't have the experience, think, oh, well, there's no opportunity to really kind of test the water, so to speak. The apprenticeship is certainly an opportunity that uh, anyone can really apply for for uh, a chance to, to work with AMI. So what opportunities are currently available? Uh, yeah, so for apprenticeships, we're looking for folks in uh, for programming and production on AMI-audio and AMI-TV, as well as AMI-Tele in Montreal. And for internships, we're really looking for, for anybody that's interested uh, in programming and production for AMI-audio and AMI-TV. Again, programming and production at AMI-Tele in Montreal. Also in the marketing and communications department, the department I work in, we're looking for interns, uh, technology services, finance, human resources, really any of the departments at AMI, um, if you're interested in an internship, learning more about what we're doing or apprenticeships in the programming and production side, uh, definitely apply. Because, uh, And I know you know this, Alex, that a lot of the apprentices and interns that we have quite often move on to become full, uh, you know, full, uh, you know, full-time employees at AMI. So it's great. The program works. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there's, I, I, I want to say probably nearly a dozen I can think of that have gone through the apprenticeship program or the internship program at one point yeah. and found themselves uh, full time at AMI after the program ends. So it's certainly a, a, a really strong program for folks trying to get into the industry. But the important information, Greg, where do people go to yeah. apply? Yeah, so go to ami.ca careers, and there will be a tab there for the apprenticeships and another tab for the internships. Uh, it's really easy. All the instructions are there, um, what you need to do to apply, and uh, and some guidelines for applying as well. Perfect. ami.ca slash careers, ami.ca slash careers. Okay, over to the wider world of television now, Greg. One of the longest-running original cop dramas is coming to an end. CBS's Blue Bloods will end its run next fall, and the show stars Tom Selleck and follows a family of police officers in New York City. So before we get into uh, Blue Bloods itself, let's, let's hear your thoughts on what contributes to a long-running show. Yeah, to me, I think anything beyond five seasons of like 22 episodes would be considered uh, long running. And not only that successful, because in the television world, once you've gone five seasons or or close to 100 episodes of your show, it means that that television show can then be shopped around to other channels in what's called syndication. And so it can be you could be watching an episode of Blue Blood, say, while you're in France on a French channel or Australia or something like that. So if it's long running, that means that it's it's reached that point where it can be sold in a syndication. And that's where everybody starts making money back. So that's that's what I define as anything over five seasons. So in the case of Blue Bloods, what do you think has been the secret to its longevity? 
it's funny, but it's got to be Tom Selleck. I mean, I grew up watching him on Magnum PI where he, you know, was very tongue in cheek. You know, he was chasing girls. He was solving crimes. He was hanging with his friends and every once in a while he winked at the camera, looked at the audience, but on blue bloods, he's really a fantastic dramatic actor from the very first episode that I watched way back the pilot episode. Um, he was fantastic. Now, Tom Selleck plays a New York City police commissioner named Frank Reagan, but unlike other police dramas, its series doesn't, it doesn't, the storylines don't follow specific, uh, you know, precinct or squads. Um, instead, it's centered around Frank and his family, and they're a prominent family with a legacy uh, in the police force in New York City. And really at the heart of it, that whole world surrounds Frank. And when he and his family, who are, like you said, made up of police officers and also lawyers, aren't doing their day jobs, they're getting together for every Sunday night for a family dinner. And that's where Blue Bloods really shines because the characters are interacting with each other. Uh, they fight, they argue, they tease. And Frank is there to either kind of you know mediate in those arguments or offer advice and guidance along, way, along the way. For fans, those scenes are what makes Blue Bloods such a unique series and for those fans it's what makes it so memorable to memorable as well it's those family dinners i i still remember when i first joined with ami and having a tv above my desk just watching tom Selleck on magnum pi reruns yeah. on ami as we used to uh, play it every single day and oh that was a ton of fun i haven't tuned in to blue bloods yet but you know it's one of the few network shows that isn't part of a franchise so what does that say about network TV dramas and how they've changed over the past decade? It's been incredible. I mean, we talk about the Netflixes, the Disney Pluses, and the Prime Videos of the world, and those really changed everything with the popularity of those streaming services. Um, networks have really had to rethink their programming. Um, it's caused them to be less experimental, not trying out new things and new ideas, and focus on what has been working for them to keep those eyeballs on screens. And that, when it comes to a television drama, is the traditional first responder procedural, like the Chicago franchise like the law and order franchise um that's really the 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 end of it right there it's uh, these are the shows that work and still get people to tune in. So we're going to make more of them. Oh, they like the law and order franchise. Let's keep making more law and order. Oh, they like the stories coming out of Chicago. Let's just keep making more of that under that same banner. Uh, yeah. And, and so obviously 14 seasons is very impressive. You know, not many shows can achieve that, whether you're part of a franchise or not. The only other yeah. one that's was independent that I, I can really think of off the top of my head is Grey's Anatomy, which is in its yeah. 20th season. So yeah. there are still scripted dramas out there that aren't, you know, part of a franchise. But why don't more scripted dramas like Blue Bloods succeed? Well, you mentioned Grey's Anatomy, and that's a really good example of kind of an outlier to what we're talking about, but uh, also a TV show like Blue Bloods that was popular before the pre-streaming days, um, like when Blue Bloods came on the air. And even though Grey's Anatomy has become, uh, even even Grey's Anatomy has become a franchise of short, of sorts because of Station 19, which is the firefighter drama that was spun off from, from Grey's Anatomy. But 
most of these shows don't succeed because the networks aren't willing to gamble anymore. If a new show doesn't perform right away, it's canceled in something in in uh, in favor of something that does work. That means sticking to that franchise formula. Or on the other hand, Alex, it, it means more reality shows because those are cheap to make and they tend to get people to tune in and watch as well. So the television landscape has really, really changed since a show like Grey's Anatomy or Blue Bloods has come on the air in the first place. Yeah, and I, I always find it interesting too because it seems like the shows, these scripted show, uh, dramas that do succeed are, are typically focused on around very key industries, whether it's the medical field or, yep. or the emergency or first response field. Like, do you think that there's going to be a chance and, and what are the chances of scripted shows finding success nowadays when they're not part of that bigger franchise or tried and true method? It's a great question, and I don't think we have the answer to it. Even here in Canada, I've spoken to television executives in the past that have said, quite frankly, we want to make other types of shows, but the proven ones that people will tune in and watch time and time again are about lawyers and cops and doctors and firefighters. It's those first responders, and it's much the same in the States. When you look at that top top 20, that's what's filled other than reality television shows. So I would love to see more experimentation and more patience with regard to network executives. I think that that that's what you know is going to make the big difference, but I don't know if they're ready to do that. And oh, you got thirty seconds on this last question, Greg. So quickly, what do you define the legacy of Blue Buds being? For me, it's been excellent writing, heartfelt performances. Um, that ensemble cast, aside from Tom Selleck, has just been top notch from day one. Uh, and really, like I said off the top, the legacy is just showing what a great actor Tom Selleck has been. I think that, uh, you know, from Magnum P.I. through Three Men and a Baby, I think he's gotten kind of short shrift. But on Blue Bloods, he's a serious actor and he's really, really good. Greg, thank you so much for for this, uh, highlighting uh, not only Blue Bloods, but our AMI uh, um, programs for, for students and people interested in the industry. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. You too. Thanks a lot, Alex. That was Greg David, AMI's communication specialist. That's all the time we have for the show. That's all the time we have for the week. So coming up on Monday, we'll get a feedback from the Canada Disability Benefit as Kelly Braun Johnson considers some of the issues behind the benefit. That's now with Dave Brown, 9 a.m. Eastern on AMI-tv. And it's Friday, so let's roll those show credits. Take care. Host, Dave Brown. Co-host producer, Alex Smythe. Sports reporter, Brock Richardson. Contributors, Rami Amuthan and Nazreen Abdel-Majid. Senior show producer, Andrika Delanerol. Visual producer, Bruce Baclarian. Producers, Paul Daniel, Marianne Dion jones Production assistant, Kingsley Juco. Director, Anastasia Spalding-Stenhouse. Control room operators, Daniel Panamondo, Eliza Rocco, Parker Oxtoby. Manager of operations, Kyle Harper. Manager of live production, Paula Deneen. Director of content development, Kara Nye. Vice President of Programming, John Melville. President and CEO, David Arrington. Give us your feedback, 1-866-509-4545. Copyright 2023, Accessible Media, Inc. NAMI Original Production. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv.
The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.